Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Professor Adam Schwartz. Schwartz is an associate professor at Oregon State University. His research specializes in Spanish language education in the U.S. and constructions of culture, borders, foreignness, race, and privilege both in and outside the language classrooms. His first book, Spanish So White, Conversations on the Inconvenient Racism of a Foreign Language Education, was published this year, uh, 2023, by Multilingual Matters. Bienvenido a este episodio, Adam. Gracias, gracias por tenerme uh, acá con ustedes. Adam, you live in Oregon with your family. Are you from there? No, I'm not. Um, I've lived here for 10 years, uh, but I'm originally from Southern California, from Los Angeles. Um, so still the West Coast, yeah. huh? Yes, but a very different mm. corner of the West Coast, <laughs> a very different way of existing. <laughs> For sure. I'm still getting, I'm still getting used to it, honestly. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. yeah, no, I like Oregon. I've been there a couple of times, so I do, I do like it. But I, I, I also California, so <laughs> yes. uh, very, very different places. Yeah. So, Adam, I typically do not interview non-Latino guests. However, your work is so important to our profession as language educators, Latino studies professors, um, and to our Latina, Latino, Latina community and students. And so I felt that this discussion um, was well positioned here, right, to, for us to talk about um, your work. Um, so I wanted to start just by asking you about your own experiences with Spanish. What 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 do you remember? What was what what were those first experiences with Spanish for you? Sure. Well, first off, thanks for taking a chance on me and inviting <laughs> me in. Uh, I'm I'm curious to know um, about its importance uh, according to your perspective. Mm -hmm. But to, uh, so I'd love to know more about that. But to answer your question. Okay, so first experiences with Spanish, um, it's hard to pinpoint. I grew up in Los Angeles. And so on one hand, uh, it's hard to think about when and where Spanish wasn't a part of my life in some capacity. Los Angeles is a multilingual, multicultural city and always has been. And Spanish is a part of that history and the ways in which Los Angeles exists more than a place to, I think, its inhabitants, but uh, but as a linguistic condition. I, you know, at the same time, I should say that I did not grow up in a home where Spanish was spoken. I grew up in a home where English was spoken. And, and also we were, I think, what's a good way of putting it? Um, you know, we were we were in enjoying while we could the last few fragments of Yiddish <laughs> that was in our family. Mm -hmm. So I'm a third generation child of immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, of Yiddish speaking immigrants. Uh, and and Yiddish was was uh, at once something that we sort of celebrated and used uh in ways that um are deeply sentimental um, and deeply personal and not in ways that we don't think about mm -hmm. um i think this is the case of any heritage language it kind of comes out in your pores mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and you don't necessarily identify as a speaker and and but but um much later many years later i would realize I would even realize that my my grandparents were Yiddish speakers and that they had refused to teach it to their children and the, and and that their own parents who immigrated with them um, would insist on not speaking Yiddish in uh, in public. So so I mean you know, I, I've still continued to reconcile um, that linguistic heritage and as a type of heritage that is deeply rooted in in growing up in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, 
but back to Spanish. So, so Spanish was at once a language that I think was considered um, by my family to be the language of folks that, that lived out there, mm-hmm. out there in the city. But as a very young child, it was a language that I was hearing all the time. So I was hearing it on the playground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hearing it at my elementary school. And I also lived in a part of the city where, where folks who spoke Spanish and continue to speak Spanish are service workers. Mm-hmm. And they work in restaurants and they work uh, in just about every sector of the economy, including uh, homes. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I lived, a, you know, as a, I think a third, third generation um, white identifying kid. Uh, I lived a middle upper class lifestyle where my neighbors and parents could afford to hire someone to come uh, clean the house every once in a while. And that individual always spoke Spanish. Um, and so, you know, I, I, that's a part of my own education. Uh, it's an education that comes that, that is linguistic. It is also education about class. It's an education about gender. It's an education about these things. And so that's my, that, that is absolutely all part of fabric that is my Spanish language education. And without really thinking about it, right, growing up, no. you, you have all this um, um, experiences, encounters, and you don't think about um, what the impact might be as you, you know, uh, uh, sort of, Um, identify uh, people by languages or professions or, you know, things like that. And you had asked um, briefly why, um, you know, why would this uh, conversation be important to our community and our students? And I think both of both you and I have been language educators for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, um, It has always been, like it has always been in my, um, especially the first years, my initial training as a language educator had been um, with the idea or with the framework that it was a foreign language, right? Um, It's described as a foreign language um, in um, textbooks and like departments uh, and class, you know, classes are identified as foreign language um, so anything that's not English in the United States is a foreign language, right? When, um, right. when, like you said, you just said, um, you know, LA, um, Spanish was everywhere, right? Um, right. And I, I'm in Texas and San Antonio and Spanish has always been here. It was never, you know, it has never been a, a foreign language here and in, in many other places of the U.S., right? Spanish is not in the country is not a foreign language it's a second language or maybe perhaps even you know that's for in in certain communities uh, first language right it's, it was the first language and so um but i think the way that we're that we have either taught or have taught our own students who <laughs> speak spanish you know as their first language or heritage language in a foreign language framework has done has done violence to our students right has done sure. um has um made it you know othered um has devalued um their experiences so so i think this conversation that we're having today about your book and and rethinking right um the the teaching of a language such spanish um has to be reframed i guess um yeah. and and, yeah. and and it's and i think a lot of departments are doing this but um you know including my department here where we're removing anything to do with foreign associated with spanish um mm-hmm. but uh but it's certainly work that is not easy to do and it's not um uh, and there's you know pushback because of just traditional, right? And this doesn't, and this doesn't only come from uh, white identified faculty members. This also right. Uh, right. comes from Latino uh, identified, mm-hmm. um, you know, faculty. Um, so, so it's certainly an important discussion mm-hmm. to to have. Um, Adam, when did you formally learn the language? So you you had, you know, you grew yeah. up sort of with language all around, but when did you start taking classes? You know, it's funny because in my book, I, I name middle school very specifically, uh, seventh grade. 
But, you know, I was thinking about this question and I realized that I really failed to mention the attempts that were made at formalized language instruction slightly earlier than that. And um, I just said foreign. It, it very, very much was <laughs> an attempt at a foreign language uh, education. I would say fourth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and for us for a beat in 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 uh in sixth grade mm -hmm. i remember i have a vague memory of it being very difficult for the school to hold a teacher um mm. to um to teach a curriculum that i remember being relegated as a sort of a part-time enrichment program i remember it being very clear what the expectations were but they were quite low that oh this is not as important as math it's not as important right. as english so, so it was it was sort of a you know someone would come in and and probably be paid next to nothing to teach right uh for like uh, you know 50 minutes tops or a half an hour for a week and it's no wonder they probably left so i i remember it was seventh grade when i was absolutely i remember being really blown away and really excited that Spanish was a proper subject mm -hmm. in school. Mm -hmm. uh, this is just as, as to be taken just as seriously as these other subjects that I had taken before. And so I think that was really the first time that I felt like it was to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And it came with a proper textbook and a teacher that was there all day long to that, that just taught Spanish. I remember being very excited about that. And that was in seventh grade. And that was a new school. That was a middle school that I was attending. And so I, I continued in my Spanish language education from uh, formally speaking from seventh grade all the way through my senior year. Mm -hmm. I, I did really well academically in Spanish and I enjoyed it more than any other class. Um, and then and then when I went to university, it, for me, it was it was kind of a no no brainer that I had to major in Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, it was my <laughs> it was my best subject, and I really loved it. Um, but it started to look and feel very different in 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 college, um, and I was with I was in different company, uh, I was with different people, and um, and and I was thinking about well, what am I going to be doing for a living for the rest of my life, and in what ways does the Spanish language find itself in my life mm -hmm. um, in ways that I hadn't really thought about before. And uh, and not just as a profession, but as a, a part of my identity, a part of, you know, who I wanted to be. So, yeah, I guess it's a long way of answering your question. Right. And, um, and, and I also, you know, I think you know, throughout this experience of taking classes, I, I want to come back to this idea of foreignness, mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 it always struck me that, um, that this was being framed as a foreign language. So I was really excited about taking these classes. And, and I have to say that I had really encouraging teachers in my book. I say that teachers who largely felt very kind of quietly radical in their approach, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they were really special people. And, and yet, at the same time, they were working with the curriculum mm -hmm. um, that um, that very much upheld uh, monolingualism mm -hmm. and uh, and a monolingual standard of communication. Mm -hmm. So there was no entertaining this idea that Spanish English bilingualism was anything other than an economic byproduct. Right. And for, of this experience for a while too most of the textbooks had um uh spanish from spain uh which was yeah. kind of added you know <laughs> that was very much valued in our textbooks right. um right. very much valued in our textbooks and and um and textbooks that were that were published in the states i i've mm -hmm. saved all my textbooks um and i returned to them and i refer to them in my book as well mm -hmm. um and yeah so so valuing valuing peninsular spanish and a, a particular variety you know urban peninsular spanish mm -hmm. um and and completely discounting uh not just dynamic ways of being bilingual in the united states but discounting spanish as it could ever possibly exist locally mm -hmm. um so so 
So maybe there was a conversation about Miami. Maybe there was a conversation about New York. What there wasn't was a conversation um, about kind of ordinary, everyday people living their lives mm-hmm. bilingually in the United States right. as the, the way in the ways that I knew all around me, like those histories weren't honored or acknowledged. And, and the other thing too is like, and here's the thing I was aware of really, really early on, it was happening right on our campus. Like we'd be in these classes, the foreign language courses, there was an entire janitorial staff that spoke Spanish cleaning up after us. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only were we socialized to just ignore these folks by virtue of their um, ex- expectations as as uh, employees, like this is this, this is the janitorial staff. They clean up after us. You barely even acknowledge them mm. by virtue of the work that they do. I mean, that was a social expectation. But by extension, the language that they speak is also to be ignored. I mean, this, I feel like I was really keenly aware of this early on. I think because I had a relationship with the language that the women that came to our home spoke when I was a child, like a a young child. but these were people in my life. And then to see that in a, in, a, in, a, in a similar sense, that type of labor was being treated invisible in school by folks who then permitted to teach the very language that these individuals spoke. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a mind bender for me. And I didn't have the vocabulary, nor did I have the courage to say anything. But one thing I did notice was that there was a very intentional effort to keep their voices and to keep their existence out of the classroom. Mm -hmm. The only time that they would be in the classroom was when we weren't there. And again, cleaning up after us. And as I say in the book, there was one communication, uh, one form of communication between the teacher and these individuals. And it was in the form of the directive, no borash, written on the board, do not erase this. You know, we need this for the next day's class. Sometimes those would be in other in other um, uh, in other uh, classrooms as well. You know the uh, the, the the so it's a, an equation that's on the board. We need to come back to it the next day, uh, or it's uh, you know it's some work that we need to resume in science, whatever. Right. But was always really telling about our my Spanish classroom in particular. I'm thinking about women specifically. Was that I had a I had a a teacher who really leaned into Spanish culture, as in Spain, mm-hmm. um, and had a, a map of the peninsula projected onto a whiteboard and traced in marker. Come hell or high water, this, this map could not be erased. It was like, <laughs> it was like it needed to be used for instructional purposes. And uh, like a poster would not do. It was something that needed to be used so that we could memorize the various provinces. The names of those provinces would have to be you know, erased from the map so that we would have to reproduce them on paper and so on and so forth. In any case, I remember very distinctly seeing that map every day of class and staring at it. But it was only later um, when I was writing this book that I think about how incredibly powerful that was that the teacher was insisting that this map you know remain on on this whiteboard and that their communication with the janitorial staff was to not erase this symbol of the colonial origin right right of this language and you know that's the thing like um and this is where I'm thinking, you know, that this is um, or also for our communities, right, that, that mm-hmm. we need to engage in those conversations. Because even in my family, I've heard, like, we grew up in Mexico, right? Um, <laughs> and sometimes, <laughs> you know, we're having conversations or whatever. And um, a family member says, well, you know, like, it's probably not correct. It's it's probably, like, not Spain correct. Like, whatever they're saying, right? <laughs> And I'm like, what do you mm. mean? Like, it is correct. You know, like, the, whatever word or uh, way they they use to express an idea, right? Um, in Spanish, in Mexican Spanish, 
and then them reflecting, well, it's probably not like the correct way to say it. Um, and so this, you know, has infiltr infiltrated our own communities, right? Where they, they um, think of their own language as foreign, I guess, you know, as not valid, as not um, as borrowed, I don't know. Um, so there, there is this um, understanding, which we don't have time to go deep into it. I'm just thinking about how this idea of Spanish as a foreign language mm -hmm. reflects what you're saying, right? And so in the way that we're teaching it, you know, as a colonial language, as in, in as a as the default, right, um, of what you know, I don't know, proper Spanish is or, um, you know, um, this legacy that we need to somehow acknowledge and, and, and um, engage with um, in a way that um, neutralizes or normalizes the way we think about Spanish without, um, without a community. Maybe it's easier. Maybe it has been easier, you know, to do it yeah, in that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, from my perspective and my experience personally, but then, you know, also as a teacher, um, you know, I think about often how, well, okay, okay, to go back to Los Angeles, the Spanish is simultaneously everywhere, and yet for, for many folks for whom Spanish is not a first language, especially for, for white identified folks, there's no expectation to speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so there's no expectation to speak Spanish, and there's no expectation to speak, uh, expectation to speak Spanish in the ways that are very local mm -hmm. so right. so i'm not expected to speak spanish to a janitor mm -hmm. because i'm not expected to acknowledge that individual right so then so then if we're teaching spanish and we're also teaching spanish in a way that elevates these discourses that oh spanish is is very practical <laughs> it's like well wait a second practical for whom and and to what ends right on one hand, I can think, well, it's very practical to acknowledge this other human being with whom I share space. But I suppose that's where the limits of that practicality end. Because, well, this person is of a different class. This person is of a different ethnicity and race. This person is a hired laborer. I should not be expected to be communicative and therefore establish a meaningful relationship with this person. So therefore, a different kind of Spanish needs to be marketed for someone like me right. and marketed for someone like many of my students and marketed for the purposes of, say, a university education or an AP level education. Mm -hmm. And so, and for a while I was calling this culturally comfortable. I, you know, I kind of come back to that every now and then, but I remember it's culturally comfortable in the sense that if the target market or foreign language education textbook is someone who has the means and the capital to travel outside of their locality, outside of a place wherein Spanish must not be regarded as a local language, then surely the only Spanish that they are permitted to speak or that they can enjoy speaking is abroad. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. is in the urban capital cities of nation states that we have come to call Spanish-speaking countries. I hear that a lot. Right. And, you know, like, that's the thing. Like, when I was um, um, in Ohio, I yeah. um, taught um, uh, service learning course, uh, service learning course in, in Ohio. Um, it's a smaller community, Spanish-speaking community, but it's very diverse. And yeah. so, you know, I always told my students, you know, study abroad experiences are great. And I still believe that, right? Just getting outside of your everyday and, and learning um, how to be and live in a different country, is, it's a great skill and, and it's enjoyable. I, but, um, but if you, but you're unlikely to live in Mexico full time or in Spain or in Costa Rica or wherever you go for the study abroad, abroad experience you are likely to stay in your community. And your community speaks Spanish with different 
varieties, right? A different varieties mm -hmm. of Spanish. So we need to be able to converse, to engage with different types of Spanish speakers, right? And so, um, so to me, that has always been important, right? What is the local variety? Um, you know, I'm in a different state and a different city now, and there is a local variety here, uh, which is important. But it is also important to me to expose my students with other, um, to other U.S. Spanish-speaking varieties, right? Um, because, you know, any city, no matter where, is, uh, is um, experiencing growth. And so with that, you have people from different uh, Spanish-speaking um, countries or um, heritages that come to our cities. Um, mm -hmm, we are mm -hmm. experiencing here in San Antonio a growth of Central Americans, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, important to that is to teach the local the local um, variety and, and and which you know it doesn't it sometimes it doesn't have to be just the one class and <laughs> that's the thing right mm -hmm, um, so mm -hmm, it, it's those mm -hmm. students that came to my class were exposed to that or to those conversations or those you know different community Spanish speakers um, but that was one class right um, yeah, how do we right. integrate it into the whole curriculum so. Um, uh, Adam, you also you you have been like I said an educator for over twenty years, and you became yeah. a Spanish teacher in middle school and high school, and then mm -hmm. later on you became a professor. And you have worked in different states. In in as you and I know, like there's different. Um, it feels differently, right? Um, in the state, and then the students that come to your classes um, are different types of students, um, including um, you know second language learners and heritage language learners. When yeah. did you personally begin to wrestle with the idea of whiteness and Spanish language education? No, I mean I think it it, it relates to what I was I was just saying. I, I think at high school, mm -hmm. honestly, as a high school student, I didn't name it. As whiteness, right. you know, back then I did not have the the consciousness. I did not possess the consciousness to be incisive about um, race right. in this way. In fact, I was very much afraid to name things. Um, I I think so. So you know, it's sort of like I had my finger on something. I, I recognized the hypocrisy of the situation. And when I went to university, part of my my reason for for wanting to major in Spanish was because I enjoyed the language and learning it and experiencing its challenges in classroom spaces. Uh, I loved linguistics, but I was also really, really interested in understanding language as a social condition. I began to take courses in university um, that uh, examined so uh, social conditions social experiences and, and ideas of culture you know I took courses in anthropology I took courses in sociology cultural studies um, and I fell into um, sociology in particular and majored in sociology I think I was looking for a long time a connection between social inquiry and Spanish language education. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to come to understand the ways by which Spanish was so deeply racialized um, and classed and gendered and socially segregated as a language. Uh, its speakers were socially segregated as uh, by virtue of their language in Los Angeles. <laughs> and, and I was becoming very frustrated in college, I have to admit, Elena, because it didn't seem like my courses in my Spanish program were taking this up. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't seem like sociology was interested in talking about language. Mm. So I was like, okay, where's the link? Where's the bridge? It's got to be somewhere. Frankly, it wasn't until I, I, I needed to do an in internship to finish with my, uh, my sociology degree. And that internship uh, uh, landed me in a high school classroom. And, uh, and I was a teacher's assistant. And it was in that high school classroom, a Spanish classroom, um, that I began to see that it was education and educational research, where these two 
things were talking to each other. These two fields were talking mm -hmm. to each other. Social inquiry, social science, uh, language education. Because I began to see now from a researcher's eye, as I was, I was in junior, junior training to become uh, an educational researcher at that time, how students were being socialized in the classroom by virtue of their successes with Spanish, mm -hmm. perceived successes with Spanish. So to give you an example, I remember working with a teacher who would physically place her students in the classroom, seat them rather, by virtue of the ways in which she perceived their abilities. <laughs> Uh, this was 2003. It feels very archaic now, but I was seeing it from a from a different perspective. So I was not a student in that class. I was a participant observer. I was a teacher's assistant, but I was also taking some low-key field notes and then turning them into um, written work for this internship class in sociology. Um, we were learning about things like ethnography and, and ethnic, ethnographic field methods and, and it was a really unique experience, and I ended up sp uh, spending the entire year in, in that classroom rather than just the <laughs> assigned quarter uh, because I felt very close to this, to this group of students um, and this classroom community. But I, a long story short, I, I ended up seeing how, for instance, heritage learners were all seated in one spot, mm -hmm. and they were being completely underserved by this teacher in the curriculum and and they and they weren't doing as well i mean they weren't scoring as high and i mean, just it it was so clear to me what was going on and what was what was so clear to me was oh yeah yeah i know this curriculum this curriculum is for a very particular type of imagined student mm -hmm. and and we don't even have to imagine the student anymore they're right here and these students are expected to travel they're expected to go to university just like me uh, they're expected to engage with Spanish as a foreign language away from this community and off they'll go. And for me, it was like, well, I think this is about white people. <laughs> I think this is about maybe something that's bigger than white people. I think this is actually about a system called whiteness. Now, again, I was dancing around it, you know, so it's, it's not it's not polite to name this stuff. And even in my own classes, I could sense that going there was a bad idea. I knew that it, what, what, what happened was when I got into educational research and I, and I started pursuing my, my, my graduate degrees in education, it was in those spaces where folks were talking about whiteness very specifically. They were naming it. And I was introduced to other scholars and other thinkers outside of educational research as I began to take courses in ethnic studies, linguistic anthropology, feminist studies. So all these people have been naming whiteness for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And they are not white people naming these things. It's very important to understand authorship, perspective, lived experience. And a lot of these wisdoms have been sitting with folks of color for a very long time for very good reason. Right. And I think, to me, that's why it's also valuable, right, to have white academics, authors speak about this, right? Because there are certain audiences that, unfortunately, <laughs> that would hear this message uh, better coming from certain voices than from others, right? Um, mm -hmm, and that's, mm -hmm. that's just a reality. And so I wanted to just, uh, mm -hmm. you know, begin talking a little bit about your, your book. Um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let me say that title again, and that's mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Spanish or White Conversations on the Inconvenient Racism of a Foreign Language and Education. And I know for some, um, you know, even the title can be threatening, right? Um, for some uh, who have taught second, you know, Spanish as a second language or even Spanish um, uh, as a foreign language here in the U.S., uh, this idea is difficult to grasp, right? It's, it's threatening. It is threatening, um, despite the fact that Spanish speakers, like we, we've been um, talking about, have always been part of of U.S. history, um, so Spanish has always been part of the United States, right? So talk to us about this, um, this work and, and their reception. Um, who would you say, I mean, I believe everybody should read it, but who did you write it for? That's very kind of you. Um, no, I wrote this very specifically for white-identified second language 
learners mm -hmm. of Spanish, folks like myself. So folks that maybe teach Spanish, folks that are learning Spanish and maybe want to teach Spanish, or folks that can relate to either of those experiences. I mean, that was my primary audience here. Mm -hmm. And it was a primary audience because, because I knew that by virtue of our shared experience, our shared racialized experiences, I could communicate to that audience in ways that my colleagues of color, my Latinx colleagues, for instance, mm -hmm. could not. Not that they hadn't tried. Mm -hmm. right. um, and as a matter of fact, I had been told for some time that, look, Adam, you need to do this. Um, you need to write this book because we've been trying to say X, Y, and Z mm -hmm. for so long. They'll listen to you, but they won't listen to us, this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I've also visited colleagues' classes, for instance, and you know, a colleague will want me to give a talk about this concept or that or a piece that I wrote or whatever. Then we'll, we'll reflect on this experience after I've left. And it's very evident. Like this, my students were hanging on to every word. I tried to say this to them, you know, for the last seven weeks or whatever it is. And it took, it took you to say it, deliver the message. Mm -hmm. And like, this is not like, you know, I'm glad I was effective, but I don't think I was effective because, you know, I'm a, I'm a good teacher. I think a lot of this has to do with the voice and the body and the perceived, um, you know, well, my, my, the, the ways in which I'm racialized and, and, and the ways in which that pays dividends for someone to pay attention, mm -hmm. for someone to, to evaluate what I have to say as expertise. Mm -hmm. And, and that's nothing that I deserved. Mm -hmm. um, that is the ways in which my body and my voice and my physical presentation are by virtue of dumb luck rewarded in a racialized world in which whiteness is highly prized. Right. And I think, yeah. and that's what, sorry to interrupt, but I think that's no, no, no. why, um, you know, sometimes we, we have to really have <laughs> what I call allies, right? Our, our um, colleagues who can, are fully aware of their privilege and can use that privilege to, to speak about issues that maybe others will not hear from from you know people of color for example it's a it's work in progress constantly you know it's constantly reflecting on the privileges that that i get to possess that are unearned but also come at a great cost to everybody mm -hmm. including myself i mean the thing is is that this is a very this is a deeply dehumanizing process. Um, I, and this is something that, I, that I, I really try to flesh out in my book. Regardless of how you, the book resonates with you, whether you, 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 you read the book and you're like, yes, finally, okay, we can have these conversations. They're the beginnings of conversations that I've hoped to have for a while. I mean, I'm so glad that that, that might be the case. Or your reaction is, this is, this is ridiculous. Um, by naming a problem, you're making the problem come into existence. This isn't an issue. It isn't my experience. The fact of the matter that racialization, race-making, these are products of a larger ism, racism, which is meant to deeply dehumanize all of us. Mm -hmm. Deeply dehumanize all of us. And, and so the ways in which we talk to one another through our languages, through our identities, multiple identities, through, you know, all of who we believe are, you know, we are, are never divorced from the ways in which we inherited this system. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so that seeps into our language education. It also seeps into the ways in which we conceive of common sense and that none of this is sensical that none of this should be the way things are. Mm -hmm. I think about the ways in which for white people that are reading this work, while I think it's really important that we're allies, we also have to recognize that we've been deeply damaged. Mm -hmm. We've been deeply damaged in order to believe ourselves to be white people. 
And I think, you know, I, I talked about Yiddish at the beginning of this right. episode. Mm -hmm. That we're barely hanging on to that language mm -hmm. in my family. Mm -hmm. It's been lost. It was uh, what I've been contending with, I think, is at some point our family, you know, um, came to a crossroads. My great grandparents, for instance, or, or maybe this is a crossroads that we hit multiple times in our family history, which is, which is one wherein we make a decision. Do we get killed or do we slowly kill a piece of ourselves? Mm -hmm. right. So do we, we run from, a, from oppression, from discrimination in order to survive? Or do we lose our accents? Mm -hmm. Do we lose our language so that we can adopt this thing we call whiteness, whether we call it or that or not, so that we are seen as passable? I mean, I think about how you mentioned, Elena, about the, the ways in which folks within Latinx communities uh, elevate certain varieties of mm -hmm. speaking and varieties that, that come from Spain, mm -hmm. the origins of a, of a colonial language. And I can't help but wonder that, oh my gosh, these struggles are very similar. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So, so it's this need to, to, to hold on to a, a prized variety of speaking in order to be seen as socially acceptable because it is how we survive. Right. And so I think about this is, this is the whole thing is killing all of us slowly. And so we have to come together and begin to listen to each other and I, so i think conversations are really and, and i talk about dialogue work i talk about conversations i talk about the need to not just speak but also to deeply listen to one another mm -hmm. those have been my most humbling moments not just as an educator not just as a student but as a human being so. And you have to willing to do that work because it is work. Yes. It is work. And, yeah. and it's, I have a colleague that recently said, you know, when you have those, those places, you know, those spaces where you come together to speak, to, to dialogue, um, we cannot guarantee safe spaces, right? Uh, but we can build brave spaces where we are speaking um, and yeah. engaging in difficult conversations, acknowledging you know, the, the ways that we've done things, the damage maybe, or uh, but not on purpose that we've done to our own students. I mean, I, even me, I have, you know, the, how I was taught certain things or certain, you know, how I became, um, how I encounter even Spanish, you know, I grew up along the border and there was mm -hmm. growing up this perception that, you know, those who spoke Spanish in the U.S. part of the border, it was not correct Spanish, right? And so I carried that ideology for a while until I had to do that work and say, wait, why am I thinking this, right? Why are we thinking this? And, and it is work that we all have to do, right? Um, so Adam, what pushback do you get from educators who feel challenged with your book? Well, it's interesting. I haven't, I think the book has only been out for just a little bit. And so I haven't heard directly from educators who say have used it in the classroom mm -hmm. or applied portions of it in the classroom. It is a highly applicable book in terms of there being exercises and places for conversation and, and, and such. Um, the resistance that I've gotten has been from spaces where I'm speaking about the book mm -hmm. or I'm workshopping about the book. And then, of course, there's a resistance that maybe I don't see, like, uh, you know, in these spaces. Mm -hmm. um, some of these spaces have been quite large. And so you can't, you can't, you're not hearing everything. You're, right. not, you're not in those, you're not, you're not, you're not in like dialogue circles right. or in partner conversations. But, but I have gotten a handful of pushback openly from folks who, in my, the very limited sample size, um, they're all white men. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's sort of a, the, the kind of cross-cutting theme between these qualms is that, well, this is not naming my experience. I mean, it's, it's highly personalized. Right. And therefore, you are naming something and creating a problem by naming it. So if you don't name it, you're, you're, you're identifying something that's not worthy of study. I mean, I had, I remember I was giving a book talk in, in actually right before the book came out um, on my own campus 
and a gentleman who was visiting the campus community, I think was just, you know, kind of someone who was locally, uh, you know, lo in our local community in Corvallis and was, you know, availing himself of uh, a publicly available talk on campus. Mm -hmm. Sat through my entire book talk, you know, so I, 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 I kind of gave a classic book talk, you know, I read a portion of the book and I sort of set things up and I talked about inspiration for the book and, and then there was an extensive Q&A and he was the first to ask a question and he had sat through the entire conversation or the entire talk rather where there wasn't a conversation holding its breath <laughs> to essentially say i think that this whole thing is a sham like i think you are you are identifying something that doesn't exist that surely in my experience and in everyone else's experience language education is virtuous it's good it's something that increases cultural awareness and understanding and who are you to be saying that all of this is racist. Who are you to be saying that? To, to sort of basically spoil, spoil the, the, the somehow inherently good nature <laughs> of language education. I mean, he just, he just couldn't, he couldn't handle it. I mean, it took up a lot of space. He took up a lot of airtime. He was explaining his framework for, for understanding mm -hmm. how this couldn't be the case. And, and it had everything to do with early experiences with working in the Peace Corps and, and, and traveling abroad. And I mean, really kind of crafted this whole narrative that, that surely was very compelling, but it was actually in some ways reinscribing the very point that I had been trying to make, hmm. <laughs> which is that, yeah, like you're talking about a language education that started when you were away from this place that was predicated on foreignness, that was predicated on, you know, uh, sending Americans abroad, predicated on, you know, not engaging with the ways in which, you know, we, we do language locally and in doing language locally and in teaching language locally, we, we, we do not see, we do not hear particular voices and bodies mm -hmm. that your positive experience was reliant upon leaving in order for you to do work that felt validated and virtuous and good. I'm not talking about that work here. I'm talking about experiences that actually I think a lot of people in this room might identify with. Mm -hmm. And that I've seen in my educational experiences. And so I, I think there's this idea too, that when we're engaging in any conversation about whiteness, that especially with white people that really haven't sat with this idea that whiteness is is everything like it, it really is right. it really is everything everything and everywhere is this kind of reaction that is well what about me mm -hmm. what about the fact that i did good what right. about the fact that i and i've and i've sort of encountered this sort of what about um response that somehow you know again i, I go back to this idea that this is a very dehumanizing thing that we're all trying to survive and so, but the coming back to the what about is saying, but, but I'm a good person, but I, despite all the awful in the world, I'm kind to other human beings. And I, oh, you know, I, 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 I learn language for good reasons. And that might be the case, but your need to hold on to this mm -hmm. sense of self-preservation. is problematic still. Mm -hmm. It's problematic, but it's also, it, it's also kind of the point. Mm -hmm. which is that we, we so deeply are trying to humanize ourselves within larger systems that are deeply dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we can hold on to that while also saying that, well, at what expense does that come? Mm -hmm. At what expense does it come for you to say, I, I swear I'm a good person? Right. Mm -hmm. Because the other side of that is racism looks like this and white supremacy must look like that mm -hmm. and i am not right. those things mm -hmm. and then and then to, to realize that actually no we're kind of cut from the same cloth that those things actually inform our experiences that we find to be virtuous and good that that's kind of earth shattering for people and it what and it it continues to be for me and a lot of it has to do with deep reconciliation and and when you tell someone this for instance, who is deeply invested in Spanish language education or Spanish language teaching or believes themselves to do really good work as a language teacher, 
you can kind of break someone's heart. Yeah, um, right. So tell me, Adam, what what do you want people to come away with when they with when they engage with your book? I want folks to feel uncomfortable for the first time in in terms of thinking about the world that is their Spanish language education. And I want them to to understand that discomfort as a product of things that are really real out there in the world. And that your Spanish language education is not everyone's Spanish language education. That there's a double standard that informs things that might be beneficial to you as a white person that aren't necessarily beneficial for others. But I also want folks to realize that there's possibility in conversation as a starting point. And I deeply, deeply, deeply believe in its power, and in particular, the power to listen, the power inherent in listening. Mm -hmm. So I hope that folks have stepped away from this book with the capacity to listen better, to listen more deeply. In language education, as you know, Elena, we're all about speaking. <laughs> we're all about producing. Right. We're all about proficiencies that must be measured by production. What this is about is, is actually quite the opposite, which is how do you take in the wisdoms of others? How can we expand what counts as a language education that is not just the production, but sitting with others' wisdoms, sitting in that consciousness and, and raising that consciousness? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what dialogue is all about. Um, not necessarily coming to a conclusion and a conversation, but being present to listen and to engage with other human beings whose wisdoms are different, whose experiences are different, and engage with them more deeply. And, and so I, I, I really, that's at the core of the book, is that there is ultimately, there's discomfort, but there's space for connections in ways that hopefully are really radical and unexpected and give hope. And that's what listening can do, for sure. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. Adam, gracias por esta conversación. Igualmente, gracias por invitarme. <laughs>